Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Businesses Blooming today. Uh, first thing I wanted to get into, just I know you have an incredible story to tell, but just from the start of it, we'd love to know about your time at the Citadel and what you enjoyed about going there and how it was like being a Division One college basketball player. Sure. Well, first of all, Daniel, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate uh, this opportunity to talk with you today. Yeah, my time at the Citadel, uh, I, I, I kind of look at it like I, I did graduate, but I, I more survived the sure. Citadel than, than, than actually graduated. When I went to the Citadel in 1978, it was still an all-male military college. Uh, it has since gone co-ed, which I think is, is, is good all the way around. Um, but it was, it was an opportunity for me, after having three knee surgeries in high school, to play at a Division I level. I mean, obviously, it wasn't ACC or Big Ten-type basketball, but it, we, we still had the opportunity. I played against Michael Jordan my senior year when we played North Carolina. It was his freshman year. North Carolina won the national championship. And then the following night, we, I played against uh, our team played against Jim Balvano in North Carolina State, who the following year in 1983, they won the national championship. So unbeknownst to me at the time, I got the opportunity to play against two national championship teams in one weekend. So it was a tremendous opportunity for me. My coach, Les Robinson, um, I believe still is the only person to be the head basketball coach and athletic director at three NCAA Division I schools. So the Citadel, uh, East Tennessee State, and then he actually took over for Jim Valvano uh, at North Carolina State when uh, Valvano got into a little bit of trouble towards the end of his career. So had a great opportunity, worked with some great people, and it was, it was a hard, difficult experience but certainly something that helped me grow up at a very young age. Awesome. I no, really uh, appreciate the insight there. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to you really understand that college for some is just really surviving. So definitely something people can, can resonate with. And I guess a quick tangent, how was, uh, did you suspect Michael Jordan was going to become what he did when you played him or just, he seemed like the average college athlete back then? I, I did not expect that. I mean, the, the big gun on North Carolina at the team at the time was a guy by the name of James Worthy. Uh, who, who's also in the Hall of Fame with Jordan. Kind of a, a, a funny story. Fast forward 20 years after I graduate, my youngest brother is a basketball coach at Loyola Academy in Chicago, and he is coaching Jordan's two sons. Wow. And he, he, he tells the story. He said, one day, it's toward the end of practice, and I'm teaching my players a drill. And I look up and nobody's paying attention to anything that I'm saying. So I look where they're looking and Jordan had come into the gym as a dad to bring his kids home after, after school, after practice. And my brother looked at Michael and said, you know, Hey, Michael, you're a little bit of a distraction. Would you mind stepping out in the hall until practice is over? And Jordan and his wife were incredibly gracious people. And he said, sure, coach, I, I'm sorry for, for the interruption. I'll wait out in the hall till practice is over. My brother thought later, gee, I'm probably the only coach in the history of basketball that ever kicked Michael Jordan out of practice. So, Maybe, yeah. Well, I mean, it means your brother has some foots, but to, to tell the crazy. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. No, it's a, it's a cool story there. I uh, appreciate the insight around there. Um, but awesome. Really interesting to hear about your time at the Citadel and run-ins with Jordan. So after the Citadel, you got the opportunity to work in corporate marketing at Wendy's. We'd love to know how you got that opportunity and ultimately kind of what you enjoyed and the lessons you learned within that role. 
Yeah, I, I was actually the first person in my family to graduate from college. And so, you know, I'm all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I'd look back now and realize how little I knew about business just because <laughs> I had a degree. And at the time, you know, I'm really going to date myself, but this was long before the Internet was available to help people find employment. So I, I moved back home with my parents and basically sent out resumes and, you know, got on the phone and said, hey, do you know if anybody's looking for somebody in, in business and things like that? And had several interviews with Wendy's and was just fortunate enough uh, to get in as the, the field marketing trainee in their marketing department. Uh, great opportunity. Uh, I, I will never forget to tell you kind of a funny story. I've been at Wendy's a few months and I get a call from the secretary to the executive vice president for marketing and advertising, Bill Welter. Now, if you think of a totem pole, Bill would have been the, the figure at the top. I would have been the part buried in the ground. That's how little interaction I had with Bill. But Vicki asked me to come to his office. And so I get there and she's waiting for me with a binder in her hand. And she explains that Bill was supposed to make a, a presentation to give a talk to a group of bankers at a luncheon in downtown Columbus, but he was tied up and asked if I could give the presentation. So she gives me the, the, the book, which has the, the talk in it, gives me the address to the hotel and says, you know, if you leave right now, you should be able to make it just in time to let the person in charge know that you'll be replacing Bill. So I literally sprint to my car because there was no GPS or anything at the time, pull out the map of Columbus, find the hotel and, and, and the route to get there. And I do, I get there just in time to give the presentation. So here were all these bankers expecting, you know, Bill Welter, executive vice president, and they get Terry Tucker, whose, you know, most significant business accomplishment to date was basically making copies, picking up and, and serving lunch to certain people in meetings. And my personal favorite, gassing up the company cars of the field marketing managers. So, you know, they were expecting somebody, they got me instead. I did the best I could, but I was an absolute disaster because as you can imagine, giving someone else's talk that you have never seen before made for a, literally an absolute disaster. Got it. Well, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to watch some of your talks. So if that's how you started, you know, you've done le gone leaps and bounds in improvement. So great. Thank great you. Terry, but now, I'm sure I, it was definitely a learning experience in the moment. Uh, I anticipate it was definitely something very difficult, but uh, fortunately, it looks like you were able to learn from it, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get much more into kind of regarding our conversation, but really appreciate the insight there. Uh, so on to the kind of next part of your career journey. Uh, new after Wendy's, you work in hospital administration. You know, some people probably look at that from Wendy's to hospital administration as two totally separate career paths. I uh, would love to know what that transition was like and some of the challenges that you had to overcome uh, regarding being successful in your role. Sure. So um, I moved home, as I said, to find a job after college. Uh, and I did. I found that first job at Wendy's. That was the good news. The bad news was I lived literally with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. I, I took the job in, in hospital administration, literally at the hospital where my grandmother and my father died, because I was there so much over those three and a half years, um, helping them through their treatments and their therapies. I, and so basically what I did when I left Wendy's, I was in a, 
a job called new product marketing. Mm -hmm. And the hospital was putting together a program development type of, of concept where people in respiratory or pulmonary or the pharmacy said, could say, hey, you know, there's this new topic, this new machine, this new product that we want to implement. And somebody had to coordinate that process. So that was that was kind of how I got into being a hospital administrator. Mm -hmm. I, I had no hands-on patient care and the, and the patients were incredibly glad that I didn't, but we, we did have the ability uh, to to try new things. It was a fairly large hospital, it was about 1,100 beds, about 5,000 employees. So we had a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And it was just, it was a great experience for me. And, and I got to work uh, for a short period of time with a woman by the name of Nancy Schlichting, who was the chief operating officer, uh, of, would go on to become the the president and CEO of the Henry Ford Health Systems uh, in Detroit, but just an incredibly intelligent woman, an incredibly uh, great person in terms of a, of just a people person. You know, I, I mean, we've all been in business where you know nobody has the guts to say no, we're not going to do that. You know, mm -hmm. you, you you come up with an idea, it's like no, we're not going to do it. I'll tell you why we're not going to do it. I'm just not going to say no to you. But I'll tell you why. And Nancy was one of those people that was able to to take people's ideas and say, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll take a look at it and literally mean we will take a look at it. We're not going to study it to death and then never do it. Mm -hmm. But she was also the type of person to say, you know, that's a great suggestion. But whether the timing isn't right or the financing isn't right or whatever wasn't right, we're not going to do this at that time. And I think people respect that. They respect people. That, that don't string you along, that, that tell you, you know, that, that kind of make it a clean cut. You know, no, we're not doing that. And here's why we're not doing that. Maybe a year from now, maybe six years from now, maybe 10 years from now, it will be the right time to do that. But right now it isn't. And I learned a lot of, from her, not just about business, but I learned about management. I learned about people from her and how she handled individuals and uh, she actually, when, when I wrote my book, I went to her and asked her if she would do some cover quotes for me on that. And, and again, very gracious and, and, and did that for me. So I, I, I had the opportunity to work with really great people. And I, I guess I always knew, you know, being part of a team, the importance of having good people. But it really kind of solidified at that point in my life, the importance of being a good people person, because you may be technically good at something. But if you if you can't work with people, I mean, you win or you lose. I don't care what your business is with the people that you surround yourself with. Got it. I think it's that's a great way of looking at it. And two point two quick points there. I want to point the other question. Um, but it's really interesting the kind of way you would describe Nancy. I think a lot of folks these days might be either too direct or kind of too undirect. But it's a, I think it's a really unique skill set when someone can have an executive presence, but also be brief as to why something isn't happening. So really interesting that you got that experience. Uh, the other point I wanted to ask about the hospital. So obviously working in a hospital, hospital administration can be a very rewarding job trying to help people. Um, but from the other perspective, is it also something very humbling in the fact you see that some people just aren't as fortunate with certain health circumstances. So does it really ground you and make it a little more grateful for every day that you're able to go on? It, it really does. I, I mean, I, I, I dated uh, a few uh, people during that time who were actually in the, the medical field, who were actually involved in patient care. And you, you know, you would hear the stories at dinner and things like that. And and you just, 
you felt the compassion, you you felt the empathy for those for those people. And you know, I, as I said, when I graduated from college, my father and my grandmother were both dying literally next door to each other, and you know, one in one bedroom, one in the next, at the at the exact same time. And you you give up, at least I did. I, I gave up a lot of social interaction to take care of them. And, and I would do that. I think that's one thing that my parents taught my brothers and I was the importance of family, the importance of caring for each other, of loving each other, of supporting each other. And while I certainly was kind of, you know, I just got out of college, I was ready to sort of make my mark in the world. And I, I think God kind of put the brakes on and said, no, wait a minute, you know, this is more important. And it absolutely was. And, and you know, it took me three and a half years to help my, my grandmother and my father get to the end of their lives. If it would have taken 30 years, I, I would have still done it because it was the right thing to do. And I think back on just what my parents did for my brothers and I, we all, we all played college athletics. I have a brother who was the one who coached Jordan's kids, pitched for the University of Notre Dame. And my middle brother, was an NCAA Division II All-American in basketball and was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. And that wasn't just by happenstance. That was because of the love and the support and the things that my parents did for all of us to get us that opportunity. Once we got the opportunity, it was up to us to, to, to manage it and, and, and move it forward. But my parents taught us the importance of family. And I, I think that was... That was just something. I, I mean, and, you know, like I said, 5,000 employee hospital, but it was a family. It was, you know, people working together, whether it was people in the in the food services or people in the laundry or the doctors or the nurses or the therapists or whoever it was. It took a family. It took a village to get someone healthy and maintain that level of health. Got it. Awesome. No, cool. Really appreciate the insight around that and kind of your work while you were in hospital administration and some background regarding your family lessons learned. So really insightful stuff there. Uh, as, natural a transition, as natural as a transition may be, uh, after working in hospital administration, you ended up transferring to working in customer service for a big publishing company, or sorry, an academic publisher. Uh, so how was that transition? How did you end up getting into that role? And are there any, any other lessons you learned in that role that really helped propel your career as you move forward? Yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I, by that time I'd met my wife and uh, she was not in healthcare, and we moved to Santa Barbara, California, and a, a small community, and and so jobs were not all that plentiful, and so I had an opportunity to work for this academic publishing company, a much smaller organization, uh, and and I ran the customer service department, who at the time, you know, had a bunch of, it was kind of a hodgepodge. It was it was very young people. It was some some older people at the end of their career. Uh, I, yeah, I ran the warehouse. That was part of the responsibilities, the front desk. So it was it was basically trying to get people to trust me, to say that, you know, the last person wasn't very trustful and mm -hmm. wasn't very trustworthy. And my boss lived actually in Denver. And so I, I didn't see her a lot. So I didn't have a lot of direction from her. Um, so, it, again, it was trying to get people to operate as a team. And mm -hmm. I, I pulled on the resources I had when I was in healthcare from being an athlete and things like that. And, and I believe I, I, I got this team together. Uh, we were only there about three and a half years, but that's also where I, I sort of took the first step in becoming uh, a reserve police officer with the city of Santa Barbara. Uh, that, you know, that, that wasn't really a paying job. It was more of a stipend 
you know, here's 50 bucks a month for your equipment and stuff like that. But it was, it was what I loved to do. I, I, you know, my bug, the bug was, was in me at that point in time when I became a cop. And uh, we can, we can talk a little bit more about sort of the next phase of my life when I did that full time. Yeah, definitely happy to get into that. But a quick tangent before we get into that. So at this point, you've worked in kind of marketing and hospital admin and customer service. Uh, is there anything in your head at this point that tells you, you know, I love switching jobs or I want to, you know, stay in my lane or what went through your mind really after working through all these different gigs? You know, I, I guess the thing that went through my mind was I really felt my purpose was to be in law enforcement. And it was... I, I never, I never let that, I guess, dream die, mm -hmm. um, despite all these other things. And and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background. So, so my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States during the Great Depression in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And when the, the criminal gangs, the criminal organizations, Al Capone and those guys were shooting up the town and he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun, it was not a serious injury, he was shot in the ankle. But my dad, who was an infant at the time, always remembered the stories that my grandmother told of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us, your husband's been shot. And so when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, which I really wanted to do right out of college, my dad was, you know, absolutely not. I, I I'd expressed interest even before college. He was like, nope, you're going to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out and get a great job, you know, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my father wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my purpose was. So I had a choice when I graduated from college. I could have said, sorry, dad, I know you're dying, but I'm going to go blaze my own trail. Mm -hmm. Or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do which is going to business. So understanding the backstory, my resume makes a little bit more sense. I still always had that desire, that, that passion, you know, to, to go into law enforcement, but it was, I didn't want to upset my father. And so I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited until my father passed away. And then I followed my own dreams. And, you know, I was, I was old to be getting into law enforcement. I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer, which by most accounts is very old to be getting into that line of work. Got it. No, for sure. Well, definitely have more questions on that. But I mean, it's a beautiful way to look at it. You know, obviously in life, you have to make these tough choices. And even though you wanted to do one thing, you valued respect more, respecting kind of your father's wishes more. Um, so, you know, whether some people agree or disagree, I think objectively, it is a very, very beautiful thing you did and very, very commendable. Uh, so really appreciate hearing more about that. So more on your police story. I uh, know, as we know now, law enforcement was your passion and something you really wanted to get into. You actually ended up getting into a SWAT hostage negotiation position. I would love to know what drove you to becoming a negotiator and kind of what lessons you were able to learn in that role and kind of what you enjoyed and kind of some tough situations. If you're allowed to share, I know those details may be sensitive, uh, but overall would love to know more about your experience working is that. Sure. So, you know, I've always wanted to to do the best and, and be part of the best in my life. Failed miserably a lot of times on, on a personal level. But SWAT in most law enforcement agencies are usually the best officers with the best training and the best equipment. So I always kind of had an idea that I wanted to be part of that. And, and SWAT, for those who 
of your listeners who don't understand is usually broken down into into two groups. The first, there's the tactical group, which are the men and women with with all the toys, with with the guns and and the armored cars and all that stuff. And and then there are the negotiators who we used to joke with the with the tactical teams that if we did our job, then you don't get to use all your toys, uh, you know, and things like that. So when there was an opening on the Cincinnati Police Department's uh, negotiating team, I put in for it just like everybody else. And there was a physical fitness. You had to run so far in a mile, mile and a half in so much time and push ups and sit ups. You had to meet with the psychologist. You had to take psychological exams. Uh, and then you had to meet with the, the command staff in, in that area. And then you met with the team. And it was kind of an all or nothing thing. If, if everybody on the team didn't give you the thumbs up, then you didn't get on to the team. So if one person said, yeah, you know, I, I worked with Terry on this and I didn't really like it, so I don't want him on the team, you didn't make it. And so it, it was went through all that and was lucky enough to, to get the thumbs up from everybody on the team. And then started training. And, and I'll never forget my, uh, we, we trained basically doing scenarios. We would, we, you know, we would act out different parts and, and people would negotiate and people would act as, as the hostage taker or as the hostage. I'll never forget. It's a very simple scenario. Hostage taker with one hostage behind the locked door. Didn't get any simpler than that. And I spent the entire time talking to the hostage, you know, and, and when it was over, there was kind of this debrief and it's like, you, you know, you do realize that you're supposed to talk to the person who took the hostage. And, and, and so, you know, a big, big, big learning curve on, on my part and, and had great people. We, we had a psychologist that worked with us, uh, you know, and, and, and the learning really kind of came in the debriefing of the psychologist saying, hmm, did you ever think that this person might be schizophrenic and off their medicine? Oh, gee, I never thought about that. You know, so, so there, was, there was learning about psychology without having a psychology background or a psychology degree other than what you have as a law enforcement officer. So learn, learned a lot. I'll give you a couple of stories. Love this one's kind of funny and atypical, not something that normally happened. This was an individual who had barricaded himself in his house with his wife. And, and I happened to be working that night. We were not a full-time SWAT team. And I'm going to date myself again. We carried pagers. And so when the pager went off, you, you got a message on where to go. And so I, I get to the scene. I, I was working that night and I get to the scene. I'm in a marked car in a uniform and I, I start talking to the officers. I'm like, what's the deal? He's drunk. He's barricaded himself in the house with his wife and a gun. It's like, do you have him on the phone? Yes, we do. I go, okay, let me talk to him. So I started talking to him. And usually it's hours into a negotiation before you start to talk about resolution before you start to talk about letting the hostage go and coming out and things like that. But I just had a feeling with this guy. And so I, about 10 minutes into it, I said to him, what would it take for you to come out right now? And there was this kind of long pause. And he said, give me a beer. I said, I said, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word that you would let your wife go and that you would come out peacefully? He said, do I have your word? I could drink it. I said, you have my word that you can drink it. He said, all right, I'll let my wife go and I'll come out. So I gave $5 to one of the officers and sent him down to the store Had the tactical team, put the beer on the front porch, called them back and said, hey, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out and you come out with your hands up. He says to me again, do I have your word that I can drink? It? I said, you have my word. All of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. 
we handcuff him, let him drink his beer, and off to jail he goes. So that was incredibly atypical. Did not usually happen that way. A more typical one, although I don't know if any of them are typical, was, was this. This was an individual who wanted to commit suicide. And he started 7, 8 o'clock at night, and he slid his wrists, and that didn't work. And for some reason, he thought turning the gas on his oven and putting his head in the oven would somehow kill him. Well, that didn't work either. And so he calls a family member, and now he's got a gun. And the family member was smart enough to call us. So it's it's late now. It's probably 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm talking to him. And he finally is like, you know, I, I just want to come out. I'm really tired. I said, yeah, I bet you are. I said, I would love for you to come out. I said, I'll come down to the scene, and we'll talk face-to-face -face when you do. He said, great. I said, put the gun down. Bring the phone with you and do what the officers, when you come out, tell you to do. He's like, okay. I said, don't hang up the phone. He hangs up the phone, which is not uncommon because we're conditioned when a phone call is over to hang up the phone. About 30 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. I thought, you didn't. He did. Shot himself in the head. Shot himself in the head, in the head at an angle such that the bullet went in right underneath his temple right here around his skull and out the other side. Never penetrated his skull, never got to his brain. So here's somebody three times tried to com commit suicide, tried to kill themselves in one night. And I think that was just God's way of saying, it ain't your time yet. So, you know, very bloody scene. Head wounds tend to bleed uh, incredibly, uh, incredibly lot. But for, for him in terms of being serious, it really wasn't a serious injury. He was taken to the hospital at an overnight stay and then um, was actually uh, sent to the psych ward. He obviously needed more psychological help than he did need to be locked up. Got it. No, I mean, it's an incredible story. You know, somewhat unfortunate that this individual was kind of undergoing these mental difficulties. But ultimately, you know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people who choose down their lives do it with, uh, with a weapon of kind of a gun's caliber. Usually it's... I imagine it's kind of an instantaneous death, but through it a point blank and somehow have the bullets get around, have to, has to be some kind of divine intervention from my perspective, I'm sure. That's kind of what we all thought. You know? It's like, really? Yeah, well, I, hope, I hope that person, if they're around, is, is doing much better today. And, you know, definitely uh, you probably had something to do with it. I know, unfortunately, they shot the weapon, but, you know, I'm sure your uh, kind of conversation helped calm them down or kind of prevented them from maybe doing something more. Or dangerous so you know hopefully uh, you saved your life that day and that's definitely commendable so really Thank interesting you. to hear about that work and uh mm -hmm. awesome that you got a chance to pursue your passion no afterward you kind of returned a little bit back to your roots in terms of basketball but coaching basketball so we'd love to know ultimately why you end up kind of going back to coaching that well going back to that sport in a coaching capacity and what was really rewarding about that experience i i in all honesty i i coached my daughter uh mm -hmm. our, my daughter, our daughter uh, is six foot two, um, actually went to the United States Air Force Academy and to play basketball, did her freshman year, ended up having surgery on her knee and, and didn't play after that. But it was just an opportunity. They, they really didn't have a coach at the high school level at her school that was, uh, that was any good. That, and so I like, look, I'm more than happy to do this. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I have two brothers. I went to an all-male, all-boys Catholic high school in Chicago. When I went to the Citadel, as I said, it was all-male at the time. So when my wife and I get pregnant, you know, I remember going to the OBGYN and her saying, 
you know, in an ultrasound, do you want to know the sex of the child? And it's like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And, you know, she said, well, you should buy pink. And I remember my first reaction was, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you need yeah. to keep it in there till it's done. I have absolutely no idea how to deal with a girl. I have absolutely no idea whatsoever. And and then we have this incredible daughter and and it, it is just is just an amazing kid. And I, I, I'm not going to say that, you know, my wife and I didn't have something to do with that. I think we did. But at the same time, you know, she and I bonded so much over basketball. I mean, she was born in March, you know, right during March Madness, you know, when all the tournament. And I literally remember, you know, I had her in one arm and I had the, the remote in the other arm going back and forth with the games. And I, I remember sitting there thinking, life doesn't get any better than this. You know, I've got my, this amazing child that I'm now responsible for and, and I'm watching basketball. So when I had the opportunity to, to coach her, um, it, it was it was different. And, and I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, I remember one time we were playing a game and we were right in the middle of the game. And I pointed to a girl on the bench and I said, you know, go in for so and so. And, you know, she's like, OK. And I turned around and, you know, I'm watching the game and out of the corner of my eye, I can see the scores table and there's, there's nobody sitting there. So I look back at her and I'm like, get in the game for whoever. And she's like, OK. You know, and I turned back around coaching the game. And again, out of the corner of my eye, there's nobody sitting there. And I look back and I look at her and I'm like, get in the game. Now she's like shaking me off like a major league pitcher with the catcher that doesn't like the sign. You know, it's like, no, I'm not going to. I'm like, what? I'm like, seriously. And so I bring her to me literally with the game going on feet from us. And I put my hands on her shoulders and I'm like, I need you into the game. And all of a sudden the tears start out, you know, down her cheeks. And I'm like, what, what's wrong? And she's like, I don't want to play. I'm like, no, 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 no. You, you don't get to be a uniform wearer. You don't get to be somebody who, you know, doesn't get in the game when I need you to get in the game. I said, why don't you want to play? And she said, well, I'm afraid that my, my friends in the stands will make fun of me if I make a mistake. And I, I looked at her and I said, well, what about your responsibility to your teammates? You come out here every day. You work hard in practice, not only to make yourself better, but to make your teammates better as well. I need you in the game now. I, I mean, the person she was going in for is like, the person needs a break. I mean, they're tired. They, they need you in. I know you may make a mistake. That's okay. But I need you in the game now. I'm like, oh, my God, am I literally having a psychological moment with, with one of my points? When I was growing up, you couldn't, I mean, I don't care how terrible you were. If the coach pointed at you to say, get in the game, it's like, yes, here we go. You know, I'm in the game. But for her, it was such an overwhelming thought that her friends might make fun of her that it prevented her from seeing sort of the big picture that you have a responsibility here and you're just not a uniform wearer. You know, I mean, I, then turn in your uniform and go sit with your kids or with your friends in the stands. I need you in the game. She eventually went into the game, but I had never experienced anything like that in my entire life, either playing or coaching basketball on any level whatsoever. No, it's, it's incredible to see these things too. Obviously, you know, anomalies, you know, as you imagine, most people who try out for these teams, they have to go through barriers just to get on a basketball team, maybe at the high school level. And they're, they're excited when they get a chance to go in, but this kind of stuff happens. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, don't, do you think there might be a bigger metaphor here too, that, you know, in corporate America or general workplaces, some people have, a really great trailblazing idea or something that they think could really help build the business or grow out on their own. But sometimes they're afraid of what their friends might think of them or what society might think of them, which really inhibits their ability to kind of be their best. 
I, I do. I, I absolutely do. As a matter of fact, I, I wrote a chapter about that in my book, and, and the chapter is titled, Most People Think with Their Fears and Their Insecurities Instead of Using Their Minds. And I know I've done that. I know, I've, you know, oh, I'd like to do this. Oh, wait a minute. You know, maybe I'm not smart enough, or maybe I don't have enough information, or what will people think about me if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. That's not thinking with our minds. Like, I've got this great idea. Why wouldn't I bring it forward? You know, who cares if somebody says you're an idiot? And, and I guess let me say this about ideas. You know, there's, there's an old saying about relationships that it's not so much meeting the right person as it is meeting the right person at the right time. And timing in life is everything. And, and, and timing for an idea is, is everything. I mean, you may have this great idea, but, you know, as I, as I go back to my relationship with, with Nancy Schlichting, the COO at the hospital, you know, no, we're not going to do this because the timing's not right. But the timing might be right a year from now or, or 10 years from now or something like that. It, it's all about timing. And a lot of times in business, you know, people say something and they say something and they say something and the answer's like, no, 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 no. But the fourth or the fifth or the sixth time they say it, the answer is yes. And, and I think that's important. You, I think you make a great point. People have good ideas. Even if you get shot down, you need, if you still believe it in your heart that it's a great idea, you need to move that forward. You need to keep say, su- making that suggestion and giving reasons. You know, I mean, it can't be, I have this great idea. Here's why I think it's a great idea. And here, here's how it's going to help the business grow and get better and diversify and find a new way to deliver our service and things like that. If you phrase it in that way, it, it's really all about what value either you or that idea brings to the organization. Mm-hmm. Got it. Now, awesome. It's a really, really great way of looking at it and appreciate the, the insight around that. Now, awesome. Really great to hear about your career so far and a lot of the challenges you've had in switching career paths, but somehow overcoming and no pun, in, well, pun intended, sustaining excellence throughout uh, throughout all these different career paths, which uh, we'll get to later. But uh, another thing I wanted to discuss, perhaps kind of the biggest challenge of all, and unfortunately something a lot of people around the world deal with, uh, you are, as of now, thank God, a, a cancer survivor and a cancer fighter. Uh, but going back to the initial part of your kind of cancer journey, when you initially learned that you had this unfortunate disease, what kind of went through your mind or really what were you thinking of? Yeah, I was diagnosed back in 2012 with a, a rare form of melanoma that uh, most people think of melanoma is too much exposure to the sun and it affects the melanin, the pigment in our skin. My form of melanoma has nothing to do with sun exposure. It's, it's called acrolytigenous, and it's basically a form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. Mine uh, appeared on the bottom of my foot during basketball season when I had a callus break open. So I ended up going to a podiatrist friend of mine and took an x-ray and he said, I think you have a cyst in there. And he cut it out and he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. And he recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center uh, in Houston and be treated. And so I did. But I think I, I don't think, I know I went through 
all the stages that we would associate with grief. You know, first it was denial because, you know, when my dad got cancer and died in his fifties, you know, I, I was still, I was an athlete. You know, I, I was exercising. I was eating right. I made a decision. I was going to have a physical exam every year, whatever test my doctors recommend, I was going to do that. And I had done that. And yet here I have this form of cancer. So first it's denial. And then I got mad. You know, it's like, I can't possibly have this form of cancer. I've done everything that I was supposed to do. And then I, it was, it was sort of a bargaining with God phase where our daughter was in high school at the time. It was like, look, just let me live long enough to see her graduate from college. Because when I was diagnosed, I was told that this was pretty much a death sentence. They had nothing to offer me other than surgery. So if the disease ended up somewhere where they couldn't cut it out. It's like, well, sorry, you're going to die. So you'll probably be dead in a couple of years. And then after that, I, I, I certainly got down. I got depressed. And then I just got to a point where it, this sucks, but I'm going to have to embrace the suck, for lack of a better term. You know, I do not like the cards that I've been dealt, but I'm going to have to deal with these and play these cards to the best of my ability. And 11 years later, and thank goodness for some amazing medications and things like that, I am... I am still alive. It, it, kind of a, a funny story. I, I get a, a letter every year from the tumor board at MD Anderson, their research arm, that basically says, you know, circle one of these three. Are you alive with cancer? Are you alive without cancer? Or are you dead? They, they don't really say the last one. They, they put it a little more uh, subtly. But that's basically what they're asking. And I, I kind of joke, I, I keep hanging around because I haven't figured out how to circle number three yet, you know, in, in, in that in that regard. But but I do. I get that letter every year. And, and for me, it's it's a sense of pride to be able to say, yeah, I have cancer, but I'm still here. You know, put that in your research and smoke it kind of thing. So, no, interesting. Well, look, hopefully you never get to the point where you live many, many years where you don't have to circle number three. Clearly, you have a lot of really great stories to tell and, you know, really, really fascinating career background. Uh, another thing, sorry to kind of another uh, no. cancer question here, but you know, as you're going through your treatment, it's it's great to see that you were able to get to this point where at some point you just kind of, as you said, embraced the sucking and just you know really overcame it. But during your initial phases of treatment, and certainly I'm sure there were difficult days, what kind of went through your mind on a daily basis, and how were you ultimately able to get to that point of overcoming it? Yeah, I, I you know there's there've been so many paths that I took, you know, like I said, when I was diagnosed, it was pretty much a death sentence. They didn't have anything for me. So my doctor initially put me on a drug called interferon, basically to try to kick the can down the road, you know, buy me some more time. Um, interferon, the side effects of interferon for me was that I had severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week. And this wasn't, oh, I don't feel good. This was, I'm throwing up, you know, in the kitchen sink and I have diarrhea and I ache and I have a fever. And, you know, we've all, it was a bad case of the flu for three days, every week for five years. And I remember I felt, I, I felt there was kind of two different worlds here. There was the world of living and the world of not dying. And I felt I was in that not dying phase. You know, I really wasn't contributing. I wasn't working felt like a tremendous burden to my family and things like that. And so at, at that point, I asked, I really asked God to just take me out of this. I, I never contemplated suicide, but it was like, look, God, this isn't living. This is just not dying. 
just just take me out of here. Just just let this be done and at least my, let my family get on with their lives. Well, obviously that didn't happen. And I, I remember when I had, in, in 2020, I was diagnosed, uh, I had an, a tumor in I, basically my ankle area large enough, that grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my, my shin bone. And my only recourse in the middle of the, the pandemic of COVID was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And, and I'll never forget that day. I, I, was, I was, my doctor had to get special permission to actually perform the surgery because, I mean, cancer had broken my leg. It wasn't like you could set it and it was going to get better and put it in a cast. And he had to get permission to actually take my leg off. And I was supposed to be in the hospital for 10 days to two weeks. I was in the hospital for 48 hours because they wanted me out because of COVID. And I remember my wife literally dropped me off at the hospital and I could have no one with me. I was in this huge room, this pre-op room that had, you know, all these bays in it, all these cubicles that should have been filled with patients having all kinds of surgery. I was the only person there. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about eerie and kind of creepy and stuff like that. And it, it was just, it was a time of tremendous aloneness, for lack of a better word. I don't even know if that's a word, but um, you, you just felt like, you know what, okay, it's me and God and whatever happens. And so faith, is, as you can probably tell, has been an incredibly important part of my journey. And, and I'll end with this. About eight months after I had my leg amputated, and I also found out I had tumors in my lungs, which I'm still being treated for, my doctor showed me my CAT scan. And, and I have no medical back. I don't know how to read a CAT scan, but you can kind of look at it and say, well, gee, that doesn't look like it's supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And I had these big tumors in my lungs. I had fluid all around the pleural spaces of my lungs. And I remember looking at my doctor and saying, how was I alive? And he kind of got this grin on his face and sort of shook his head and said, I don't know, because you shouldn't have been, which said to me that God's not done with me yet. You know, when I die, where I die, how I die, way above my pay grade, spend a lot more time now worrying about living my life rather than how, how I'm going to die at the end of my life. That's well, an incredible point. If I quick question, so assuming you're you're Christian, is your religion? A yes. Yep. So uh, personally, I'm Jewish, but to draw a parallel here, obviously, uh, we're not going to get into the the whole minutiae of, of all the differences here. But uh, one of the things, actually, one of the rabbis said, uh, one of the Chabad rabbis in New York said that I think draws a great parallel to something you said. Uh, you know, he said when a lot of people are going through really difficult situations, and you know, life can be really difficult, and you know, they wake up every day sometimes. Uh, just not really, you know, not really wanting to live, maybe similar to how you were feeling. But he said there's there's a powerful message in the sense that every day you wake up, it's 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 God or Shem telling you every day that, you know, I need you today. I need you to, you know, to fulfill your purpose, you do something. So even though, you know, slightly different religions here, just that same kind of metaphor of like every day you're needed for some kind of higher, higher purpose, I think is a, is a really beautiful thing. So I hope hope that was okay to bring up. But I think uh, it's, it's a beautiful metaphor there. No, it's, it was absolutely uh great thing to break up. I'll just give you a quick little backstory to that. You know, I mentioned I coached high school basketball. What I didn't mention is I coached high school basketball at a, at a Jewish school. Oh, and our daughter had learning disabilities at the time. And I'm Catholic that are that the Catholic school did not provide the learning specialists that our daughters needed. So we sent her to the Jewish school because they had the learning specialists. So I, I totally get where you're coming from, been to many Jewish services and stuff like that. I you know, I, I mean, 
having faith is is one thing. I, I, I'm not so sure God really cares what that faith is. It's yeah. just believing in something that's bigger than us. No, for sure. I think that's a really, really great, really great way of looking at it. Heard from from religious leaders and heard from yourself. That's an incredible way of seeing things. But really great to hear about your journey and how you're able to stay positive through it all. And ultimately, a lot of this stuff came to fruition in a book that you wrote titled Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon Extraordinary Life. We'd love to know ultimately what was the inspiration for this book and why you end up wanting to write it and what your goal is for folks who end up reading this book. Yeah, that Sustainable Excellence was really a book born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school had, who had moved to Colorado with her fiance where my wife and I lived. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was really excited that she was living close and I could watch her find and live her purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. Uh, I'm reminded of another famous Jewish person by the name of Viktor Frankl, who was a, a concentration camp survivor during World War II, who talked about how we all have a moral obligation to live the purpose for which we were put on this earth to do. So that was that was one conversation that kind of was an impetus for the book. And then I had a young man reach out to me from college on social media. And he said, you know, what do you think are the most important things that I should learn, not to just be sick, successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life? And Daniel, I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help out. I, I didn't want to give him the sort of tried and true things that, that we all know we need to do to be successful. So I wanted to go deeper with them. So I spent some time and I, I started carrying a pen and paper around and taking some notes and sort of had these, these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I sort of stepped back and I was like, well, I got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So literally during the three to four month period where I was healing after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. And, it, and it's always funny for me, not funny, but fun for me as an office, as an author, when people reach out because the, the principles are not in any order. Number one isn't any more important than number seven or anything like that. But there's always one principle that resonates with the reader that really kind of touches their soul, so to speak. And that's always a great place that we can start, you know, talking about the book or talking about their experience or story that, that resonated with that principle. So it's it's been an incredibly um, rewarding uh, journey for me to write a book. I, I, I didn't want to write a book. People were were suggesting, you know, you should write a book. You should write a book. You should write a book. I'm like, I'm not writing a book. I'm not going to do this. But I think, you know, there's a there's sort of the old joke that goes when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. So God never talked to me. God has never, you know, said anything like, hey, Terry, write a book. But I think what God does is he puts enough people in our path that make the same suggestion over and over and over again. And I think I'm smart enough that when that happens, that I sort of, you know, sit up and, and listen and pay attention to that. I always say that, you know, I wrote Sustainable Excellence, 
but I think it was inspired by something much bigger than me. Got it. No, it's really, really beautiful to hear and awesome and happy you wrote it. Definitely. You know, if anyone's looking to, to read that, it's available on Amazon. I'm sure. Based off this conversation, it's probably a, probably a great, great read. Definitely add it to the reading list. But a few other things I uh, really quickly wanted to ask, you know, I'm sure you went through your struggles, as we just mentioned, but if there's someone listening, struggling through something or keeping it internally. And what broad advice do you have for them to really get over that hump and try to see the positive things and the positive uh, aspects of life? Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of people, I'm sure you have as well, Daniel, that, you know, people start down the road toward a goal and then something gets in their way. An impediment stops them, blocks them, and they can't get over it. They can't get around it. They can't get through it. And so they quit, but they don't quit and just leave it at that. Now they got to blame somebody. And, you know, people, they'll, they'll blame their parents or they'll blame their boss or they'll blame their, their station in life. I think very few people will ever get to where they want to be in life because they won't stop whining and complaining about where they're at. Very few people take personal responsibility for their own success and happiness. Now, I I think we all have a breaking point. Don't get me wrong. But I think that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever thought it was. And I'll I'll give you I'll give an example. I'll give you a story. Back in the 1950s, there was a professor at Johns Hopkins University who did a a very simple experiment with rats. He took Mm -hmm. rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat would tread water before they would sink and drown. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. Wow. So think about that. 15 minutes. I'm just not, you know, my business isn't going to fail. I'm going to die. My life is going to be over. Second time around, 60 minutes, which told me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our Mm -hmm. lives. That maybe not today, maybe not this month, maybe not even this year. But if you keep doing the things you know you're supposed to do to get you where you want to be, eventually you will get to that point. And yeah. secondly, just how much more our physical bodies can handle. We give up, we quit, we, we, we let ourselves down long before our body ever fails us. So I guess that's a long-winded answer to your question, but that would be my advice for people. Got it. No, it's, it's a great way of looking at it. I think a lot of times when we really you know, have a character change or a character shift and accept responsibility for a lot of the things you know, happening and not try to blame others, we realize how much time we were spending, how much time we were wasting doing that stuff and really how much we could have been working on ourselves and then really learn about the things we can improve. So, you know, personally, I'm certainly not perfect can definitely improve a lot, but definitely an aspect I'm working on and really, really great to, to hear it from yourself. Uh, just a few other things wanted to get into two other quick questions. Uh, you know, with this kind of cancer diagnosis that you have and, you know, God willing, you keep fighting and fighting it and that third, third uh, dot never gets circled. Uh, but would love to know what you want your legacy to be and how you'd like to be kind of remembered. I I don't have any, I, I don't necessarily want to be remembered. I, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it really, how we are remembered is, is, is one of, one of the truths that I have that it is what we leave behind is what we weave in the hearts of other people. And, you know, nobody's going to remember me 50 years from now and that's okay. I, I, I don't, 
I, I don't I don't have any, you know, oh my gosh, my life has been a failure because people aren't going to remember me. No, I think it's how we interact with each other, how we we touch each other. It, I mean, we all seem to think that, you know, it's it's about what we get. Mm-hmm. And and Daniel, what I've come to understand is that, you know, we seem to think that we are born empty. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, once we get out of school and we kind of get into life, whatever, whatever life looks like for us, that we spend our time filling ourselves up. You know, I've got to get a great education. I've got to get a great job, make a lot of money, drive a nice car, live in a nice house, have a great family. We, we fill ourselves up and that's going to somehow make us fulfilled, make us happy. And what I've come to understand that one, it doesn't. And two, it's just the opposite. Mm-hmm. We're not born empty. We're born full. We're born with everything we need to succeed in our lives already inside us. We just need to find that and pull it out and use it to our benefit. So it's not so much what you get. Your job in life should be not to get stuff, but to give stuff, to to empty yourselves out with whatever your unique gifts and talents are, certainly for the betterment of yourself, but also for the betterment of your family and, and your community and your country and things like that. And I think if you look at it that way, it's not what you get, it's what you give, then your life has a whole different purpose, a whole different meaning and a whole different value. And it's something that I can certainly go to my grave saying, okay, I've done this. I've, I've, I've emptied myself out with whatever God gave me for the betterment of this world. Now it's time to go home. Got it. No, it's, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful way of looking at it. And I think, uh, you know, some of the conversation I had the other day, I think a lot of people focus on, you know, instant gratification or the money or this or that. But in reality, when you focus on giving and adding value, you know, money or career success, all that will be a byproduct of, of that. So it's a great way of looking at it. Um, but awesome. Last thing I wanted to get into, you know, loved hearing about your career journey and kind of how you're able to fight through, you know, this unfortunate diagnosis. But I uh, would love to know how you find happiness in life. Um, I guess I'll answer that. I mean, certainly happiness for me comes from what I call my three F's, faith, family, and friends. Mm-hmm. But, I'll, but I'll answer that with, with a, another story. I, I had a nurse recently ask me what it was like. I had my foot amputated in 2018. As I said, I had my leg amputated in 2020. And she asked me, what was, what was that like? How, how has that been? And I told her it certainly hasn't been easy. You know, I'm, I'm six foot eight inches tall. So learning to walk again and falling from this height, not a good thing. People get hurt. So definitely don't want to do that. But what I told her was cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my heart. It can't touch my mind and it can't touch my soul. That's who I am. That's who you are, Daniel. That's who everybody's listening to us is. And we spend a tremendous amount of time. And I think you alluded to that you know, working on this vessel, this house, you know, we, we go to the gym and we get enough sleep and we eat right and we reduce stress. And and that's absolutely important stuff. And I'm not telling you not to do that. But what I am suggesting is maybe every day, spend a little more time working on who you are, your heart, your mind, and your soul. This body we all know is going to die. It's going to decay. It's going to go away. But who you are, your heart, your mind, your soul, those things are eternal those things will last, they will outlast your body. They, they are really who you are. And I think if you can work on them and find the value in them, they will absolutely make you happy. Got it. Awesome. Well, really, really appreciate that answer and really appreciate you know you sharing a lot about your career story, how you're able to fight on through a lot of this cancer and really leave a great and lasting legacy. But 
overall, Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure on having you on the Business of Bloomin' podcast and wish you the best moving forward. Well, Daniel, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Right.